0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Stevie Van Zandt. Stevie is a musician, writer, producer, actor, radio host, and activist. He is best known as the guitarist of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and the lead member of Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. He's also known for his acting work on The Sopranos and Lilyhammer, his radio work as the host of Little Steven's Underground Garage, and as well for his tireless devotion to education with teachrock.org. Stevie's latest book is Unrequited Infatuations and is published by Hachette Books. Stevie, thank you for joining me today.
1: My pleasure, my friend.
0: So for those who may be unaware of your work or of your book, please share with us what it is, uh, what it's about.
1: Well, <laughs> it's about 400 pages. Um, let's see, what's it about? It's about my crazy life, um, and uh, the first half of the book is kind of a, a you know local kid makes it to the top of rock and roll, which is a great story in itself, but. Um, Second half of the book, I think, gets a little bit more interesting, a little bit more broad in terms of the themes and starts to include, uh, I think, things that people can relate to, whether they're, you know, in the music business or not. Uh, having it do with a search for identity and a, and a search for um, purpose in life. Um, having that first dream sort of uh, uh, disappear for whatever reason, I think most people at some point in their lives uh hit that hit the wall you know or or might might hit the wall in terms of their 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 fantasy life or their you know what they what they imagine their life to be and suddenly it's not working out or or whatever, whatever. and um and now what you know so i i think you know i'm hoping it's 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 encouraging and and uh inspirational in a sense of um Uh, Basically, when I left the E Street Band, um, I didn't just change jobs, my life ended. And and, um, and, and so the the, the basic theme is is if you can find a way to keep going and stay alive and not succumb to, you know, uh, uh, self-pity and drugs and drinking and suicide, all of which I considered... Um, you will find that destiny maybe uh, is not done with you yet. And, and, you know, you may find that, like in my case, everything I've accomplished basically happened after I thought my life was over. So, you know, I'm hoping that can be some kind of motivational (laughs) sort of idea. I think so. So about your childhood in New
0: Jersey, you write... We were the second generation of rock and roll kids, which meant that we were the only the second generation able to play records in the privacy of our own rooms. Can you talk about the impact that had on you and what those early records were?
1: Yeah, I mean, the main impact uh, would have happened really uh, for the first generation, uh, for the pi- you know, the the pioneers in the 50s uh, were worse Quite wild. I mean, they were wild to the point of of, of novelty acts, really. But novelty acts that were half um, distraction and half scary, a uh, very very scary for for the parents of that of that fifties generation. Um, uh, mostly because of the success of the black artists. You know, there was still a very very. We were very. Uh, very much a segregated country and um, rock and roll was associated with black artists mostly uh, you know Elvis Presley would would obviously change that but he was very influenced by black music and that and that was obvious by the way he performed and so this became a threat um, you know you know to to uh, to the parents of the day and the society in general very very you know there's all kinds of stories about you know, uh, people breaking those records and and all, and uh, police raiding uh, live concerts. It was really quite a scary time for society because it was the beginning of shaking society up in a good way, and the beginning of integration, basically, uh, which uh, unfortunately uh, continues today. Uh, we're still struggling with it today, which is embarrassing to be frank. Uh, but anyway, at that at that point. Um, you know, at, at first, all of these performers, they all had some shtick, you know, they all had a sort of a, a novelty kind of shtick, which which helped make it more palatable at first, you know, uh, Chuck Berry, um, you know, the, the moves he made, you know, Bo Diddley, the moves he made, uh, Elvis Presley, you know, you, you name it, they all had something going for them in terms of a, uh, it wasn't just music, you know, it was, a, it was the way they dressed, it was the way they performed, and... Um, and my, uh, my thinking of this w- was, you know, in those days, the, the record player at first was a piece of furniture in the middle of the room. And, um, and uh, you know, in, in order to get that past your parents in, in those days, you know, they had to kind of approve of what you're listening to. And uh, I don't think Little Richard, uh, you know, would have survived that test or Jerry Lee Lewis or, or any of them you know i think at some point the parents would just have, have have shut that down um and there's a great book about all of this um i think it's called 45 rpm i should know the name of it it's terrific uh i think it's still available i hope so but anyway um um so so they they um for various reasons and it's a really an interesting story having to do with um um, trying to give you the brief version, but basically having to do with the unions uh, boycotting, uh, you know, worried about radio uh, playing records because they thought that was going to put live music out of business. There was a whole war- concern about about um, the industry being destroyed by radio, <laughs> oddly enough, and and uh, and, and so uh, they started making 45s. With the the uh, um, with the more for, for the more controversial and, and edgy types of music, uh, this rock and roll, this new rock and roll thing, blues, you know, country, even, uh, you know, and and along with those little forty fives, uh, which were made basically so they wouldn't break into jukeboxes, you know, because the old the old stuff would break, the old shellac, whatever it was, you know, the seventy eights, you know, the once they once they fell on the jukebox, it would break. And so they made they made these plastic vinyl singles, and along with them, that's a long story short. Here, uh, along with those little singles, they made little portable record players for kids. This is all for kids, by the way, mo- mostly for kids. Uh, and again, that was that the novelty item of rock and roll was was playing was you know was at play there. Uh, so the kids could bring these little portable up into their room <laughs> and play whatever they wanted. And I think that's how rock and roll survived because without that, I honestly don't think it would have gotten past the living room, uh, you know? Uh, so there was, um, that, that was the, the, uh, beginning of, of, of technology, <laughs> you know, helping out, uh, the art form, and there was the beginning, literally the naissance of what I consider to be the renaissance of the 60s. Um, so we inherited all that, you know, we, we, if we took all that for granted, we didn't know anything about that. Uh, we, we, we all had little record players in our rooms and we all, you know, played the singles for ourselves and occasionally wore them out. That's how much we played them. And so we inherited rock and roll as a as an institution, certainly by the time the Beatles and the British invasion, you know, really uh, staged their coup d'etat on the charts. And suddenly rock and roll wasn't just a cult, uh, uh, another cult, it became mainstream. Rock and roll became the mainstream because of the British invasion. Okay. So while you're listening
0: to these records, you're also forming your musicianship chops, and you start a lot of the um, bands early on in high school. And while you're creating those bands, you, you write about just diving in and learning from the experience, and this would be a methodology you would adopt throughout the rest of your career. Can you share with us what those early band experiences were like and
1: what you learned that you still apply to this day? I kind of divide the um, music, uh, you know, career, if you will, into three, sort of three stages. Um, And that probably hasn't changed, really. You had the teenage years, um, uh, and and then you had the bar band years, and and then you have the get into the business, you know, you're in the business now, you're in the music business, and you're... You know, you're, get, you're signed by a record company, you're making records, and you're doing all that. The teenage years were actually the most fun. Now, um, you know, it, it's a shame, because you don't really realize that at the time. You don't really, um, you don't enjoy it as much at the time. But looking back on it now, the wonderful part of those teenage years was rock and roll was so so new that no adult even pretended to understand it. You know, there wasn't anybody going to tell you what to play. They had no idea what you were doing, you know. Um, And and if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to have a rock and roll band for some reason, play your dance or play your your beach club, you had to go to kids. You know, there, there was no such thing as a... 25-year-old playing rock and roll, even even in those days. They were the wedding bands. You know, they were the previous generation bands. You had to go to 15-, 16-year-old kids to actually, you know, have some kind of semblance of this new rock and roll thing going on, you know. Uh, so it was a wonderful, wonderful, liberating, you know, you were completely free to do whatever you wanted. You know, Uh, and uh, again, it's a shame we didn't really appreciate it at the times because you start to appreciate it when you get to the bar band years and that completely changed. The the opposite was true. Now the the bars are telling you you have to play the top 40, you know, whatever the top 40 uh, hit singles were. And by the 70s, the top 40 was not very cool. It was extremely cool in the 60s. Uh, in my opinion, the evolution of our art form actually um, was mostly uh, the, 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 the the pop singles the, the pop rock singles of the 60s um, which led to the ultimate uh, zenith which was the uh, the who's uh, Pete Townsend's Tommy, but basically the hit singles of the 60s uh, was still to me the highest evolution of, of the art form. You know, give me a three minute Motown single and uh, or, or a Beatles single or a Stone single. You know, uh, so many uh, so many of these great songs were hits. Makes you certainly makes you a bit nostalgic for those days, you know, Uh, because there's no it hasn't been a rock and roll hit I don't think uh, on the charts for 20 or 30 years now, Uh, but they were all hits back then. I mean, you know, have you seen your mother, baby? By the Rolling Stones was a hit single, you know. I mean, crazy things. Um, But anyway, uh, so so um, so yeah. So the early years were kind of fun, and, and 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 man, there was work all the time. We, you know, we were still in high school, so you're playing weekends and, uh, you know, beach clubs, high school dances, VFW halls, uh, you know, uh, teenage nightclubs were built for our generation. Uh, Nobody saw that before or or since. You know, we were such a lucky, lucky generation. I call us the luckiest generation. Um, You know, literally, Latine debut was built for us, you know, and you had to be under 18, to, to, to get in, you know, those kind of things. So we, uh, we had a, a wonderful sort of freedom, uh, right up until the end of the sixties. And then when drugs began, you know, people started, uh, marijuana got to the suburbs, everything started to shut down and change and get weird. And soon people would stop dancing to rock and roll, uh, which we brought back. Uh, in the mid-70s with, with, with Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes in our residency in Asbury Park and the Stone Pony. That, that uh, 1973, 74, 75 period when... When things had stopped, people had stopped dancing to rock and roll basically by then and were just getting stoned and sitting down and listening to it, you know, it was a whole different uh, sensibility. But in the bars, you know, they were usually five or ten years behind, (laughs) which worked out to be a good thing actually for us because being a dance band, I think, prepared us to be a terrific concert band. And that's one reason why there's very few great concert bands now because they didn't go through that dance band period where you had to make people dance or you didn't work. And we went through it. The Beatles went through it. The Rolling Stones went through it. The Who, the Kinks, the Day Park Five, they all, they all had to be dance bands at some point. And I think that, that, strengthens, uh, that strengthens your performance ability. It's interesting to
0: see how music and rock and roll had changed from the 60s and the 70s in terms of style, how you consume it, but you say that in the 70s, it was the worst time in history to record. And I wanted to know what you meant by that and how that affected your ability to work in a studio.
1: Yeah, it was just it was just funny. Um, an, an awkward decade, an awkward decade, generally, there are some exceptions to the rule. Um, uh, but but basically, the, as it became an industry, OK, it wasn't really an industry until the 70s. Um, up until then, it was just the Wild West. Uh, but the Wild West with um, really great records being made uh, the old way, you know, the way, the only way they knew. And if you go back and listen to basically every record from the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, sound great, you know. And suddenly, um, you know, 24-track recording came in, you know, multi-multi-track recording came in, which gave you a lot more freedom, but... uh, uh, you know, more 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 bad things happened than good uh, from from multi-track recording, in my opinion. I mean, uh, the beginning uh, of the trouble started with stereo. To be honest, uh, you know, it's just completely unnatural and uh, made people lazy and made people less qualified to do what they do. You know, you know, it just made things easier in a in a technical way, which wasn't which wasn't a positive thing, actually, in the end. But anyway, um, you know, um, suddenly the engineers became more important because uh, you were recording multiple, multiple tracks and, uh, and so mixing became a, a thing. You know, mixing wasn't that big a thing when you're recording two-track, you know, or even four-tracks. You know, uh, you know, you put four faders up and you're done, <laughs> you know, or in the beginning, you know, two, you know, whatever. Um, when it's 24 and then 48 tracks, you know, suddenly the engineer uh, has got to be a, 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 a different job, you know, in, in a way. Um, and, and so the engineers became more important and so they wanted more control. Um, and suddenly, um, you know, leakage, you know, uh, one instrument leaking into another microphone from the band being recorded with just a couple of mics, like the old days. Um, that was something that would became uncool. They wanted to be able to control every single, every single instrument and every single track. So they started to pad everything, rugs and towels and pillows and the bass drum and, you know, tape on the drums and uh, all of this stuff, you know, and close-miking. And so they basically, the concept was, you know, take all the excitement out of the recording and then we'll put it back in the mix. I mean, (laughs) it sounds ridiculous and it is ridiculous. <laughs> and that's what was going on uh, throughout the seventies, really, until we figured out how to fix that, which was well, let's go back to the, what worked in the beginning, which was, let's find, let's find uh, drummers who know how to tune your drums. Let's realize that the harder you hit a drum, like in the, in the heavy rock, hard rock way, the smaller the drum sounds okay, because the early drummers were all jazz drummers, right, they're all, and, and if they weren't jazz drummers, they were, they were being trained by jazz drummers, all of them, you know, if you took a lesson, you were taking a lesson from a jazz drummer, and they played with their hands, with their palm up, you know, which was easier, and had a snap to it, and, 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 uh, and, and really Ringo uh, was the first one, I think, to play with, with hands down, and, uh and, but anyway, mo- but most of those guys were playing, you know, and, and uh, the microphones were, were overhead. So we realized why everything sounded great. And we fixed it on, the, on Hungry Heart was the first time we fixed everything. We actually got a great drum sound. It was because you know, they were using the room sound. You know, it was the room that mattered, not the close mic which is just, you know, sounds like a stick hitting a pillow, you know, not very exciting, but if you walk into a room and a band's playing, you're going to hear what we realized is the room sound. And, and so we we discovered that and it was a huge uh, revelation uh, for us. Uh, this is 1979, 19, no, uh, yeah, 80, 81, whatever. And then, of course, uh, after years and years and years of figuring this out and struggling, you know, six months later they invented sampling, and uh, you know, all all that research was <laughs> was completely useless because now you could push a button and have a terrific snare drum sound. But but um, but before that, you actually actually had to earn it, and so. Um, you know those things were corrected basically by the '80s. You know, but but in the, in the '70s, a lot of records just didn't just didn't sound as good as they should. The yeah, one one exception certainly was was Led Zeppelin, who uh, you know Jimmy Page was was uh, an absolute genius producer, and I, I don't know why he didn't produce more. It's a shame because he's absolutely a, an absolute genius. I mean, you know, you listen to the first Led Zeppelin album; it just keeps getting better. And they did the thing in like two weeks. Uh, but they were, but they found out. You know, they were, and, and you know, of course, John Bonham, the drummer, uh, was probably making suggestions as well. But they ended up recording him in a in a stairwell, and you know, using room room sound, in other words.
0: Well, it's really interesting. We talk about recording in the seventies because you have a very vast analytical musical mind, which I think is fascinating. And you mentioned "Hungry Heart," which brought up my next question: that after this, you know, during the seventies, you're working with Bruce, getting a lot of experience and success from that. And then when you record the river, you, there was a quote I found fascinating. You write a record ain't a movie. It's a fine line. How sparse you can make something without the visual assistance before you lose an audience. And I want to know what are the challenges involved with not losing an audience when recording an album?
1: You know, it's, it's a, you know, trying to summarize these, these ideas. Um, the, the, a record is, is, a, is a few different, uh, a few different elements to a record. Um, you have the, you have the composition, uh, you have the arrangement, you know, you have the performance, you have the sound and, um, they all have to be, um, they all have to be really working together. Um, and, uh, 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 uh the, the, the craft of arrangement, Um, I've always found the most fascinating and the most interesting and and the most fun. And the one craft that has sort of disappeared um, uh, up until I don't know when, uh, mid-70s maybe, uh, there was always an arranger at the sessions. Uh, That was an essential part of the mix, part of the crew, you know. Uh, now the lucky, the lucky guys had, you know, like a, the Beatles, uh, obviously had a George Martin who was both a producer and an arranger, but that was, uh, rare actually. Um, you know, most, most producers had arrangers, uh, uh, at the sessions. Um, and so my, I have, you know, ADD, my ADD was, you know, way before it became fashionable and kind of works for the newer generations you know who made ADD you know uh a, a simple uh, seed change you know really it was just a uh had, you know um we 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 uh, so I, I would get bored quickly listening to a song and so i want i want something interesting to happen in the, in the second verse you know, I want something interesting to happen when the chorus comes. I want to surprise people with a bridge. I want to surprise people with a, with a, with a solo in a different key. I am the king of modulation. I will, I will modulate a solo almost every single time. Um, which means changing the key. Um, why just to surprise you and keep your ears awake you know, as you're listening. Um, and it, and it, so you have a dynamic force of a force, uh, uh, going on within the composition, you know, the composition can begin with just an acoustic guitar and sing and and you sing a song and and that's a song that that's, that's a composition. Okay. But it's not a record, you know, a record, uh, involves these other things, you know, the arrangement and the sound. And uh, like I said, uh, uh and, and uh, so, so, um, so, so I, so I, that, you know, we, we struggled a bit, you know, we had, we had a, 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 little bit of a difference of opinion, um, between me and the other two producers, which were Bruce Springsteen and, and John Landau. They, they liked the, the more, uh, Simplified a Stoic, uh, you know, sort of um, spare, um, in their minds, uh, more cinematic approach. Um, uh, in a in a, a more extreme way, you know. So I would always I would always just be uh, arguing, uh, yeah, that has its place, and and sometimes that works great but most of the time not uh, you know most of the time um you know you want to you want to keep people interested on on more than a and it can be subliminal it, it doesn't have to be really something that, that you know way out front it's another instrument coming in in a subtle way that um keeps the thing you know keeps the thing uh, dynamically you know emotionally in keeping you emotionally engaged you know um no it's just a, it was just a matter of um you know it's a matter of opinion really that this is not a right or wrong thing uh it was really a matter of you know whatever you preferred but that was a uh, part of the artistic you know part part of the art form is is making those kinds of decisions you know how, how produced to make something, you know, when does the production, when does the arrangement uh, help a composition, and when does it start to uh, dilute it or, or, or confuse it, or, you know, uh, these, these kinds of decisions you're making every few seconds. You know, as I, as I say, a, a masterpiece is a, is, a, is a thousand good guesses, you know, and I stand by that.
0: <laughs> well, the album came out, you know, it was a very successful album, and when you're touring uh, for the album in Europe with Bruce, at, around this time you meet in a German kid that changed your perception about politics. Before you weren't really interested in politics, but now meeting this kid, you you were, and I and it set you on a path that you're still on today. Uh, share us uh, what happened with that meeting.
1: Yeah, we were touring uh, Europe for the first time, really. We had done a very brief tour uh, for Born to Run, but but uh, the real tour came two albums later with the River, and uh, we finally had enough success to really go to Europe. And uh, I'm so glad we did. Uh, it became uh, an extraordinarily important part of our of our uh, career. Um, we had a wonderful genius agent, uh, Frank Barcelona, who insisted we go to Europe when it was not a regular thing to do. People were not automatically going to Europe in those days. Uh, Many bands didn't, you know, which is why years later, you know, you you could see Van Halen opening for Bon Jovi, which was, for an American, an extremely bizarre, you know, uh, thing to witness. But it was because Van Halen didn't go to Europe, and Bon Jovi did, because they had the same agent as we did, Frank Barcelona. Uh, But anyway, so we're touring, and uh, a kid comes up to me in Germany and says, why are you putting missiles in my country? And I didn't, uh, I didn't had, had no idea what he was talking about. I guess he was talking about NATO, uh, which I didn't know anything about at the time. And I was like, I don't know, I don't, I don't even no idea what you're talking about. And uh, but it's just, it's just, it just stayed with me for some reason uh, for weeks. It would keep uh, the the, uh, the the brief little encounter would just uh, keep recurring, you know, recurring, uh, recurring, and and. Uh, and finally, you know, I'm a little bit uh, slow, I'm, I'm more than a little bit slow. Uh, it finally hit me, uh, oh my God. Um, this kid's, well, you know, once, once you're overseas, you know, people don't look at you necessarily as just a guitar player or, or, you know, a Democrat or a Republican, um, suddenly I realized that they realize they look at you as an American. You know, and and I was like, wow, I'm an American, (laughs) you know, a little embarrassing for that to occur to somebody who's 30 years old, but, uh, you know, I I was like, this never occurred to me before, you know, it's not the kind of thing that's going to, you know, occur to you in New Jersey, (laughs) but uh, overseas, uh, you know, the whole different perspective, And, and suddenly I'm like, wow, if I'm an American, what does that mean? what does that mean? Do I have some kind of obligations or responsibilities or what, 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 what does that mean? And, uh, and so I began this journey of self-education about what that means. And I was like, well, you know, if we live in a democracy, which we really don't, but we're close enough, you know, we, we, um, we are responsible for what our government does. So I guess I am putting missiles in this kid's country and I made me wonder, what else am I doing? And what else is being done in my name? So I started studying our foreign policy since World War II and was quite shocked to actually find out we were not the heroes of democracy. I thought we were, uh, and, and by the way, my father was a ex-Marine Goldwater Republican. So, you know, I grew up with that, uh, that context. Um, and I and I was I was actually quite shocked to find out that we, that we were supporting a lot of dictators around the world uh, and, um, you know, not doing the right thing. So I decided once I started my solo so-called career, uh, just a, a year or two later, I thought that would be my thing. You know, because uh, g- growing up in the '60s, as I did, everybody had to have a, 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 had to have a, a very uh, spe- specific identity. You know, and uh, especially in the '60s, uh, what I literally refer to as, as, as literally the uh, Renaissance period. Come the '70s, it was it, it was a fragmentation. I talk about the fragmentation that happened in the in the in the early '70s. Um, and the hybrids would begin, you know, you, you, you weren't going to have as original, uh, artists again, but even the hybrids, uh, had an originality to them. Uh, and that's why, uh, the Jukes, uh, got the, the, got the, uh, we ended up kind of creating our own little genre of rock meets soul by having rock guitar with, with horns, you know, so um, it was. It was uh, that was that was the, our particular hybrid. Um, anyway, so 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 you had to have an identity. And I thought, well, if I'm going to make some solo records, um, I don't think the world needs you know love songs from an ex side man. Uh, let's. Um, I'll be the political guy. I'm. In, I'm into politics at that point. I'm into learning about myself, learning about how the world works, and I'm going to write about it. You know. And so I outlined five albums right away, uh, with different themes uh, and and and, and sub themes, and then I would I would then um, write the records according to the themes that I that I had laid out, and uh, you know, and I learned a lot about myself and about the world uh, through the eighties, and then uh, come nineteen eighty nine, I just I just uh, I had learned what I wanted to learn, I had said what I wanted to say. And I just, and I just felt, um, you know, I did, I, I kind of did my rock star, uh, I, I lived, I lived my rock star fantasy out and I no longer really, um, you know, I, I was like, uh, I don't really feel like being a rock star anymore, you know, <laughs> I'm going to look, I'm going to, I'm going to try and figure something else out and, uh, and I didn't figure it out really for seven years after that. I just literally walked my dog uh, and then until David Chase called and said, you know, do you want to be an actor? And I said, well, I got nothing better to do, so let me try that.
0: Well, while you were creating this, this five-album arc and exploring the political side of your music and lyricism, you weren't just talking the talk. You were walking the walk. Uh, you got really engaged in politics, going to Central America to observe what was happening there. And while this is happening, the apartheid situation is worsening in South Africa, and there's discussions about a boycott. And you write in your book that your thought was the hotwire existing boycott model, and this results in Sun City. Can you share with us the process of putting that album together? And what were the challenges you faced while doing that?
1: Yeah, it was just part of the uh, I I made a list of all the conflicts in the world um, when I started to um, do my research and uh, start to write my solo records. And uh, there was like, I think, 44 or so conflicts in the world, one of which was in South Africa. Um, But out of all the conflicts, um, I really had difficulty finding out what was really going on down there. Um, It was a bit mysterious. You know, there was uh, rumors or, you know, conventional wisdom said there were reforms going on in the the government. And it wasn't really an issue in America, by the way. Um, You know, you'd hear from time to time somebody say something, you know, Harry Belafonte would say something or... Or you know Randall Robinson or Stevie Wonder you know somebody would mention it, um, but it wasn't an issue uh, and, and and you know there was no movement really uh, a very there was a very vague uh, you know sort of uh, disinvestment movement uh, which would eventually migrate to the colleges and you know it was little 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 is there is there only in 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 a, in a very. Subtle and ineffective, ineffective way. Um, so I went down there. I went down there twice in, uh, I guess it was '84, um, and just started uh, learning about it. And and at that point, um, I went from uh, artist journalist, if you will, uh, which would have been my first two two albums. Um, I started to get engaged. You know, I got engaged. Um, and I really, I, I, I really remember the moment I got engaged. Uh, actually, I mean, uh, 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 I was in a taxi cab, and and and, and, a, and a guy, a, a black guy, stepped off the curb, and the taxi driver really swerved to, to hit him. You know, and, and and he had to jump back, and he just, just, just missed him. You know, and he was like, you know, fucking kaffer, you know, which is their word for nigger. And i was like did i just you know did i just see that did, did, I, did that just happen you know and uh it it was uh, such a shock to me that uh i just said let me let me out let me out let me let me out let me out of the cab and uh and uh, and, and i was like whoa um this is beyond reform you know this is he got, got to go uh you know and I, I had done a lot of interviews with a lot of people and i started to realize the depth of the the the, the depth of the racism went all the way to the church you know and once you start uh w- w- once you start defending or justifying racism by you know biblical passages you got a real serious problem. You know, you, you now you now you're you got a you got something that's so deep that uh, it ain't getting fixed. It ain't gonna be. It ain't. Gonna, it ain't fixing itself. You know. So I, I realized uh, they got to go. There's no reforms going on here. It's bullshit. And uh, and uh, and so so I sat down and I and I said you know okay how do I bring a government down? You know um, that's that's something new. Uh, you know, uh, and and uh, at that point, you know, I went from artist-journalist to artist-journalist-activist, you know, in with the South Africa thing. And I just said, you know, well, well the sports boycott is very effective. The home run is the economic boycott, which will cut off the banks, and therefore they will have to change. What's in between sports boycott and economic boycott, the cultural boycott? Okay, so we'll focus on that which is perfectly uh, appropriate since we are cultural, you know, music. And I picked uh, this resort that um, um, they were disguising uh, and saying it was in a different country. Um, um, Very, very briefly, uh, they had uh, learned from our Indian reservations and uh, decided to uh, return the black population to their so-called tribal homelands, which was really uh, just just uh, a, a lie, a, a method to to, to to for their for their plan. Uh, and their plan was get all the black people out of South Africa proper, you know, out of Johannesburg and Pretoria and all the main cities. Uh, bring them back to their tribal lands, you know, and South Africa was not very tribal except for the Zulu. Uh, uh, And so, and then get them all out, declare those homelands independent countries, and then bring all the black people back as as immigrant labor. And then declare South Africa as a democracy. You know, uh, this way the black people won't vote and black and they weren't voting by the way, that was the whole problem. you know you, had, you know you had whatever it was 24, 25 million black people and three million white people and the black people weren't weren't allowed to vote. Uh, so, so, so they would declare uh, South Africa democracy and uh, and you know that was the plan and one of these so-called homelands was Bapu Tuswana, which was where this Sun City resort was and they would overpay people to play the Sun City Resort. I mean, overpay like hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, per week. In those days that was real money. <laughs> uh, um, in order to violate the United Nations boycott. you know, But they were saying, you're not violating the boycott, don't worry, you're playing a different country. You know, uh, but of course that was a lie. So we thought, well, let's expose that lie that they're playing a different country and therefore, expose the homeland policy, and therefore give the people an understanding of what the apartheid system actually means. You know that sort of divisiveness, that that dividing, you know, uh, that, that that concept of division. So we use. Uh, so that's what we did. We used the Sun City resort, and you know, we just said to the to the music world, don't stop stop playing Sun City, no matter what they offer you. And um, uh, and we kind of they, they never really saw us coming, you know. We kind of just snuck up on on the world in a way, you know. Um, suddenly, um, we do we do the song. Um, um, I, I, and 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 it was four of us. Very important. Very importantly, there was four of us, and each one of the four of us, and uh, any one of us missing would have been a whole different story. Um, I connected with Danny Schechter, who. Who basically uh, publicized the whole thing to his own, you know, um, rebellious genius, uh, Arthur Baker gave us his studio and his and his phone book. I mean, most of the album is his, is Arthur Baker's phone book, uh, and then Hart Perry came in and, and videotaped it. And the reason why that was important was because no radio station would play it. <laughs> we, uh, uh, you know, a couple stations would play it, but that's it. That was it. It was it was. Ironically, too black for white radio and too white for black radio. So we had our own, you know, little bit of apartheid in, our, in America, which continues to this day. But uh, so, so uh, the the only way people actually heard the song was by the video. I, I had a meeting with MTV and and with BET, the black the black network, and um, and luckily and thankfully, they played it. Um, it wasn't obvious. It wasn't an obvious thing to play. You know, it, it was not an issue. You know, so you had to explain the issue to people, and even some of the artists that came on, I had to explain the issue to, um, mm-hmm. because. Uh, and, and in fact, I had to, I went to the Senate and explained it to the Senate with Bill Bradley, at the time. Uh, you know, that's how obscure it was. I mean, I had to point out, <laughs> I had to point out to the Senate where South Africa was. You know. <laughs> I said, well, there's two hints in the name, but okay, uh, you know. Uh, and anyway, so, so we, we were able to um, get such publicity because the home run, again, was going to be, eventually there was going to be a disinvestment, you know, an economic uh, legislation to cut them off. And that was we knew that was that was the whole point of this exercise, and we knew when it got to Ronald Reagan's desk that he would veto it, all right? Because it was he was it was the unholy trinity of of Reagan, uh, Thatcher, and Cole, UK and, and Germany, all supporting the apartheid system, you know, um, and, and and so we had to raise the consciousness of America to the point where. Miraculously, uh, we would find a way to override a Reagan veto, which had never been done, uh, and so we um, we were able to do that. We we got to the Congress, you know, Congressman Congress people's kids, and suddenly the kids are coming home asking their congressmen and senators, you know, Wait, "Daddy, mommy, what's this? Uh, what's this South Africa thing?" You know, and um, and we uh, and the legislation came up, and Reagan vetoed it and we uh, overrode the veto. Uh, just to show you what a different world it was, we, uh, it was overridden with Republican votes. Okay, there's Republicans defending the right for Black people to vote, okay, in the 80s. You know, now the Republicans are doing everything they can to stop Black people from voting in America. So, uh, a very different world.
0: Yeah, absolutely, with the rise of Christian nationalism happening, it's, it, makes me think about if you were to do something like a sun city today so not to show my age but sun city is older than me but uh i know that it was impactful and i grew up in a world where i are where i knew it was impactful and had experienced you know not personally no, any south african issues but um i see how that music in that music activism had an impact and so I'm thinking, how would you have done Sun City differently? Not, not, not how you would done it differently, but how you would have adapted that model to 2022 if you were to do it today.
1: Um, it couldn't be done. Uh, we were very fortunate to do it when we did it. These days, uh, there are so many problems going on, uh, and the fragmentation of our society is such that uh, half the country, no matter what you do, and I mean literally no matter what you do, we couldn't get half the country to agree that a pandemic was a problem. Okay? We can't get half the country to agree that the environment is about to destroy the planet. (laughs) Okay? And And frankly, it's actually too late. You know, we, you know, we may salvage some of it, <laughs> but we're not going to salvage all of it. We're, you, know, we, we, you know, it's too late, all right? We, we have blown this one. And, we're, and, you know, so it's an emergency. It's an emergency with the environment. It was an emergency with the pandemic, and half the country uh, refuses to acknowledge it. I mean, so if you can't get people to agree on a, on a disease that's going to kill you, or, you know, half the world's on fire... <laughs> You know, uh, you know, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, you're not going to get people to support some foreign country's problems. Well, I mean, look at Ukraine. You know, one of the most regretful, embarrassing moments of, of my life. I'll, you know, if I live to be 200 years old, I will remember our cowardice being bullied by this son of a bitch. You know pretending he's gonna blow up the world with nukes. what we bought that you know 30 fucking countries bought that bullshit he's a he's a he's a scam artist he learned from Trump he's watching Trump his buddy you know Trump scammed his way conned his way all the way to the presidency. he figures out oh, why, why shouldn't I attack Ukraine look at how weak these people are. this guy tried to overthrow the government he's still playing golf. I should be afraid of them. No. I'm going to attack Ukraine and I'm going to say, I'm going to, you know, I'll push the nuclear button if you if you try and stop me. And 30 countries said, oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, just don't, just don't, you know, just don't go into France, you know, you know, and we'll and we'll let you, you know, we'll let you massacre a fucking country while on TV every day. You know, a new reality show. Let's watch Ukraine get massacred, you know. Uh, I've never been so sick in in my life, in my life. I never felt so bad Uh, and so embarrassed to be an American, you know, as watching us, you know, stand back and watch another country get slaughtered for, you know, it's just a a shame. So over the last
0: 40 years, you have found many ways to still be an activist and your latest foundation is teachrock.org. I want to know what some what are some of the biggest challenges within education you've become aware of since founding Teach Rock and how you're addressing those with the organization.
1: We've had uh, a remarkable uh, success and and virtually um, no hurdles, no problems, uh, which 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 surprised me a little bit uh, because you know nothing we're doing now is is, is political at all. You know, it's strictly. Um, the integration of of, of arts uh, into the the basic uh, curriculum, um, and 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 and, um, and we and we we have found that by the integration of, of arts into the curriculum, not not as an after school thing, not as a as an extra class, but uh, literally infusing, integrating art into math, into science, you know, into technology, um, into engineering. Um, you know, um, we we found it's 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 much more effective, and 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 the, and the kids have a great time. The students have a much better time. The teachers have a much better time. Uh, we have enormous success with this thing. And, um, and 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 you know it's basically three things. It's it's the integration of, of, of arts in, into the DNA of our of our public school system because a lot of it got cut out uh, through the No Child Left Behind legislation, which was just misconceived. Um, it was uh, the second thing was creating a methodology for this generation. Well, like I say, it's no longer it's no longer. ADD is no longer a disorder. It is it, it is simply the new reality. Uh, so how do you uh, capture students' attention and keep it in this world where you can get any answer you want on your device in 30 seconds, you know? So we call it teaching in the present tense, teaching in a way that gives them something they can use now because it's all about right now. Um, and then the third thing, uh, long term, we're hoping to affect the dropout rate. You know, I- increase the graduation rate out of high school because it's a scandal. I mean, it, it, it's it's intolerable. It, it, we're talking incredibly. You know, 50 percent in, in the poor neighborhoods, and then half of them end up in the in the, uh, in, in the in the in the you know in the in the in the system in, in the in the judicial. You know, system, and uh, you know, in crime, a crime of some kind. You know, so that's just, that, you know, how do we call ourselves civilized and live with those kind of things? Uh, I don't know. So, we're hoping in the long run. You know, it's it, statistics show if a kid likes one single class or one single teacher, they'll come to school. So we want to be that class. We want to be the fun class that uses music. So we we licensed a bunch of music, a bunch of videos worldwide for free. We offer it to teachers for free. We have over 50,000 teachers doing it and dozens of partner schools now adopting it. And uh, and so it's really been uh, surprisingly easy. We, we just got to scale it right now. You know, that's our problem. You know, getting enough investment, you know, people do donations and, uh, you know, and I'm, I do what I can. To increase the donations, but but you know the more donations, the more because we have to have teachers teaching the teachers, you know, how to integrate it. So it takes a, it takes a bit of money, you know, to do that. But we uh, we've been doing, you know, we I didn't want to take any government money. I didn't want to take any any grants that involve people having an opinion. You know, <laughs> I want to. I, I had a very specific idea here, a very specific concept concept that I didn't want diluted. You know, so we've been doing it all with private money. And uh, you know, uh, hopefully, we'll continue to do it that way. And, and uh, but it's been it's been uh, it's been really uh, an interesting experiment that uh, I think is working quite well.
0: Yeah. What has been some great advice you've gotten over the years that have shaped your activism?
1: Activism, well, well, um, I, I think you grow you grow naturally into it a little bit. You know, I, I don't think that people have to be told necessarily. Um, although it's nice when, when there's really, uh, enlightened parents telling their kids, uh, yeah. give something back, you know, uh, uh, share, share your knowledge, your success, your, your, you know, share your wisdom. Uh, um, we're all connected, you know, I mean, it's nice to be taught that early if you can, if it can be, because we are all connected. And, um, And and uh, but I think in in some ways if you're if you're open-minded enough and and, you know have uh, some element of enlightenment in your DNA, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna realize that as you grow up anyway, and you get to you know late teens, early twenties, and you you start to find your identity. Um, you know, at some point you're gonna find out that doing good things, doing, doing things that improve the world a little bit. And I mean a little bit doesn't have to be a big thing, but just uh, just a little, you know. Uh, you, you know, we, we do three things in this world, right? We 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 learn, uh, we practice our craft, and we teach. Okay, and any any day you can do all three of those things in the same day, is a good day, you know. Uh, and, and, and practicing our craft also means the learning of our craft, and and, and that never stops, you know, and, and, and it could be multiple crafts, of course. Uh, so I, I try to emphasize, don't worry about the big stuff, you know, don't worry about art, focus on the craft. The art will take care of itself, you know, um, and, and the same thing with, your, with, with uh, you know, do something local, do something, you know, once in a while, have your band just play a local food bank or, or, or uh, you know, something something local, and and, and you'll you'll find it quite a selfish, you know, quite a self-serving uh, thing to help people. Actually, you know, you feel good. You feel good by doing it. You know, you know, you do it as much for yourself as you're doing it for somebody else, and, and so, you know uh, I always tell people I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a nice guy. I, I'm not, I'm not some philanthropist. I'm not, you know, uh, I do things out of completely selfish reasons. You know, <laughs> I invented two radio stations cause you know I, I wanted to hear him on, on radio, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, and I, and I, and I find, you know, I, I, I want, I want society to be safer and better, which means more education. You know, and we should be treating our teachers the same way we treat our firemen and police and military. You know, they are on the front lines uh, of the war against ignorance. And man, we need that war fought right now more than any other. Okay, because literally half the country is ignorant. I mean, ignorant any way you want to define it, you know. And uh, I don't, you know, we, we, we have to uh, continue to try and, and reach kids early, early enough to realize, you know, to, to, to have them realize what it means to be an American. We have to bring civics back, you know, into the classroom first of all. In addition to, you know, that was going to be our, our our second wave of thing. We're trying to integrate civics in, into the into that into the mix also, because that's been missing. Obviously, you know, (laughs) people don't know how the government works, you know, but but the art the art thing is, 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 you know, there's no wrong answers in art. You know, we ask them, who's your favorite artist? Whatever answer they give is the right answer, you know, and then we say, okay, let's let's trace them back. Let's see where they come from. Because you have to get students on a common ground. You got to go to you got to go to them. We have we, you know the methodology of, of 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 the school system has always been dragging kids to our own uh, our own uh, methodology, our own our own way of doing things. You know this is the way it's always been done. Learn this now, and someday you'll use it. You know. Well, guess what? That ain't working anymore. Okay, that's not going to work. So. Well, let's go to them. Let's go to the kids. They come with gifts. Kids come with gifts. students come with gifts. They come with imagination built in. They come with energy. They come with uh, uh, you know, they come with instinct. you know they, they they come with opinion. they come they come they come with four or five, six different gifts that school systems um, uh, you know historically, have suppressed or, or ignored. Forget all that stuff. Leave all that stuff outside. We're going to teach you this, 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 and this. Well, we feel it's more important to teach a kid how to think than what to think. You know? And, and, and so you connect the dots. And the arts does that. And, and like I said, we who's your favorite artist? Beyonce. Well, Beyonce comes from a woman named Marita Franklin. Mm-hmm. And she comes from Detroit. And we talk about Detroit. And she comes from the gospel church. We talk about the gospel church. She was involved in civil rights. We talk about civil rights. And the kids are there with you, and they're and they're listening. And why? Because it's on their turf. You know. It, you know. We, we went to them and, and let and let them know that this is something that influ, in, impacts their life now, and let them enjoy Beyonce a little bit more because now you know where she comes from. You know, and so suddenly the the knowledge becomes richer. Their 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 favorite song becomes meaningful more meaningful you know so all that stuff is integrated into into our system now and it's it's working very well
0: i really appreciated that thoughtful response to my question because your book towards the end does go into your ideas about political and social issues that are current and also you addressed a lot of um you know music analysis that you cover upon in the book There's so much in this book and it's absolutely fun and entertaining. And there's so much we didn't cover today. Um, So my last question for you is I've been living in Chicago for about 12 years now. So I got to know, do you have a great story about your time in Chicago?
1: Well, Chicago is, is one of the, you know, holy cities of my religion, my religion being rock and roll. And of course Chicago is, is the blues stuff that I grew up with. Um, So my first trip to Chicago, I went to the South Side of Chicago and went to the Blues Clubs. Uh, There were still quite a few back then. And, uh, you know, I got up and played, I think at Buddy Guy's place or, or, uh, oh, I forget the names of them, but, but, uh, you know, uh, so there was, you know, uh, that was a thrill just to to see those Blues Clubs and, and uh what, 2120 south michigan avenue uh right was uh where where uh, chess was um you know and uh And then, of course, the other side of me, uh, I was excited to uh, get to uh, Jilly's, (laughs) which, you know, my my uh, Italian-American side of me, which, you know, Jilly's was a, a, uh, you know, a a bar owner, ended up a bar owner, friend of Frank Sinatra's who had a famous place in in New York. And then he opened a, they opened a place in Chicago. I don't know if it's still there, probably not. But, but, uh, so, you know, it was it was, uh, you know, it was exciting to come to the, you know, the town of Robin and the seven hoods, you know, <laughs> was featured, you know, uh, and I, and I, and I would, uh, I would, uh, use the, my, my kind of town, uh, in Lilyhammer, this uh, TV show I did in Norway, I adapted it to, uh, to, uh, my character uh, uh, would, would, would sing that song in, in a Lilyhammer episode. So it was, you know, Chicago was a, a very, very special place, uh, for, for me, uh, just to uh, liter- literally, it, it is the home of the blues. As far as I'm concerned, you know, my, my favorite, you know, all my favorite stuff was the chess stuff and, you know, uh, muddy and, and, and little Walter and, 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 uh, you know, Alan Wolf and all, all that stuff. Uh, so it was, uh, it was thrilling and, and it always has been a special place to me.
0: It's a fantastic city, great music history. And just to let you know, the chess building is now, uh, it's currently the Willie Dixon blues heaven foundation. So the building is still active hmm. as a blues museum, uh, oh, excellent. In the namesake of Willie Dixon. So next time you're Chicago, it's worth a visit. Very cool place. That's a
1: good idea. Good idea. Well, for, those, for those that don't, we should mention. For those that don't know, Willie Dixon wrote the entire blues songbook. Okay, and I, I am I am not exaggerating. You know, because you know, there's the American songbook, and there's the blues songbook. Well, Willie Dixon single-handedly wrote it. I mean, it's it's amazing how important Willie Dixon. Was uh, he? W- he worked. Uh, he worked for Chess, for the Chess Brothers, and uh, and was a session a bass player. But but uh, but more than that, he uh, he wrote. He wrote the, 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 all the blues songs that you know. Uh, he, he wrote. So I'm, I'm glad they did that.
0: Stevie, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation, and your book is wonderful, and it's coming out in paperbacks. And congratulations!
1: Thank you. Yes, yes. I don't know when, but soon.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Stevie Van Zandt. His book is Unrequited Infatuations and is published by Hachette Books. Thank you.